actually, I'm really, I'm really enjoying this teaching series. I'm loving this teaching series on, on transformational stories. I, I, I just love a good story. I mean, who doesn't love a good story? Um, quite often over the summer, um, I will take a break from my normal theological books and reading and um, dip into a bit of fiction. I like uh, science fiction and fantasy. That's my preferred genre. Um, Sean tends to like those stories where someone goes on holiday and falls in love and then rekindles the lost love years later and something like that. I haven't read them. Um, Amelie, who's rapidly becoming a teenager, although she's only 10, is currently into the Hunger Games series, a sort of dystopian, bleak outlook at the future. It matches her mood very well. Um, <laughs> she has left, hasn't she? Yes, okay, fine. <laughs> Um, and Elijah's currently reading three books. He's reading uh, Artemis Fowl, How to Train Your Dragon, um, and Troll Hunters, which I've also dipped into, which are, um, are great. But, but, you know, I think stories are really important, actually. They allow us to escape for a while, don't they? Go on an adventure somewhere new. Um, and they teach us things, too. Stories can broaden our horizons and change our perspective. Um, often we find ourselves in the stories. They remind us of of what's important, or, or warn us about going too far down the wrong um, path. And sometimes they can give us hope as well. One of my um, favourite authors, Neil Gaiman, once wrote that fairy tales are more than true, not because they teach us that dragons exist, but because dragons can be defeated. Just let that one sink in for a moment. But the best stories, I think, are those stories that transform, those transformative Stories, And of course, the Bible is full of them, some of them based uh, on historical fact, some of them uh, more fictitious, and some with a bit of both. And Jesus was, of course, famous for his stories. He was the master of using a fictional tale grounded in reality to teach a theological point, often referred to as parables. Um, think about Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. There absolutely was a road between Jerusalem and Jericho that was used by Robbers and priests and Levites and Samaritans, but none of the characters were actually real. They were just literary devices used by Jesus to help his listeners connect with the story and understand it. And Jesus did this all the time. Sometimes he even uses real people in fictitious settings, like the time he talks about Abraham in the story of rich man and Lazarus. The rich man calls to Abraham and Lazarus from, from Hades. A little bit of reality, a little bit of fiction. And I think today's story is very similar to that. It's a fictional story grounded in reality, but with a really, really important message. And the story is called um, Jonah. And if you went to Sunday school, you may have just added, and the whale um, in your head, which is fine. But in our Bibles, it's just called Jonah. And it's in the Old Testament, in the Book of Twelve, or the Minor Prophets. And if you do have your Bibles with you, please um, feel free to... Uh, look that up. It's a little bit dark. Can we turn on the, the lights, Dan? And then, oh, there we are. Now you can see your Bibles and, um, and actually follow along. Um, yeah, Jonah, Old Testament. So it's a relatively short story, especially compared to last week when we were looking at the book of Job. Um, just four chapters, but a, a fascinating story nonetheless. And if you're not familiar with it, or maybe you haven't um, read it since your Sunday school days, let me try and give you a quick overview of um, the story before I dig into some of the details. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Um, so Jonah was a prophet 
called by God to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness. But Jonah, unlike the other minor prophets, wasn't particularly keen on doing what God wanted him to do. And so he boarded a ship heading in the opposite direction. And in response, God sent a storm after him, which threatened the ship and the crew. And the sailors cast lots to try and figure out whose fault this is, and all signs point towards Jonah. Jonah eventually fesses up and strongly encourages them to throw him overboard. It seems he would rather die than do as God had asked him to do. Um, But the sailors, being surprisingly kind-hearted souls, are reluctant at first. Um, But eventually uh, they chuck him over and the sea calms down. And then this is where things get a little bit strange. Unwilling to let Jonah die, God sends this huge fish to swallow Jonah Um, And he keeps him inside the fish for three days and three nights, uh, which is quite a a long time to be in a fish. Um, (laughs) And while he's in there, Jonah, I mean, he displays a little bit of gratitude for his life, um, doesn't actually apologize, but I I think somewhat reluctantly agrees to obey God. And so God has the fish vomit Jonah back onto dry land and again asks him to go to Nineveh. And after presumably several long showers, Um, Jonah obeys and spends three days going through the city, which was quite a big place. Um, And while he's there, he preaches uh, the weakest sermon that anyone has ever preached, ever. It's only five words in the Hebrew language. Um, In our English translation, it's 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Nothing else. No mention of what they've done wrong. Um, No mention of what overturned actually means. No funny jokes. No clever stories. Um, Doesn't even mention God. Um, It's a bit half-assed, to say the least. And yet, somehow, it works. People turn to God. The king repents, and he issues a decree that everybody, including the animals, should fast and be covered in sackcloth in the hope that God will change his mind And he does. And that would seem like a really good place to to finish the story. That's like a a happy ending, right? But you see, there's one more chapter to the story. Chapter 4. And it turns out that Jonah wasn't very happy about God saving the Ninevites. That's okay. We can just listen to um, Julie's... I, I like to pause and let everyone stare at you for a little bit first, <laughs> rather than just breezing through. <laughs> yeah, Jonah's not happy. He's not happy that, that God has saved the Ninevites. Maybe he felt that God was somehow undermining his prophetic message. And so he sort of turns into this teenager and he says, oh, oh I wish I was dead. Um, not teenagers like we've got in this church, because they're obviously <laughs> awesome. Um, but God says, well, we, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah's not listening. He stomps out of the city and he sets up camp to see what God does, perhaps hoping that his mood will somehow encourage God to do the right thing and destroy the city. Um, but instead, God creates this leafy plant over Jonah to provide him with a shade, which um, cheers him up a little bit. Um, but then the following morning, God sends a worm to eat the plant and a scorching east wind, at which point Jonah completely loses it. Like, he just goes mental. And again, God says, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah stamps his feet and he says, it is! I'm so angry, I wish I was dead! Um, Which is literally what it says, chapter 4, verse 9. 
But God has the final word in this story. And he says, Jonah, you're so concerned about this plant that you didn't help feed or, or grow or tend. Why should I not be concerned for Nineveh, in which there are 120,000 people and many, many animals? And that's it. That's how the, the story ends. We don't get to hear Jonah's response. Um, we don't even get to see what happens to the city. We're just left with this haunting question. Should I not be concerned? And so what's this story about? What's it telling us? If I think back to my um, Sunday school days, the message I got was something like, um, you better do what God says or you might get swallowed by a fish. Um, which is sort of terrifying, isn't it? When you think about it. No offence to my Sunday school teachers. I'm sure they did a better job than that. I probably just wasn't paying attention. Um, but, you know, the more I read the story, the more I, I consider it and think about it, the, the less I think it's got to do with the fish at all. But let's just let's back up for a moment and ask ourselves a really, really important question. It's a question that Steve suggested we should ask last week, and I think um, it's a really, really great question to ask whenever we approach the Bible. Um, and that is, what sort of a book or what sort of a story is this? What are we reading? What's the, what's the genre? Now, one suggestion is that this is an historical account, and I think there's some merit to that. Certainly, it contains details that appear historical. Uh, Nineveh, for example, was the capital of Assyria, a famous um, enemy of Israel. The Assyrians, uh, Assyrians attacked the northern city in 722 uh, BCE, and they caused constant trouble for the southern kingdom, Judah, as well, until the Babylonians took over. And they were this powerful, kind of terrifying nation that skinned and impaled anyone who resisted them, certainly in need of repentance. And Jonah too, it seems, was a real person. At least he's mentioned in one other place in the Bible, which is 2 Kings 14, where we read about Jeroboam II, this horrendous king of Israel. It says in verse 25, he, that's Jeroboam, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord and the God of Israel spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai. But apart from the setting of Nineveh and Jonah being the main protagonist, or maybe antagonist, um, the story doesn't contain any other historical details. And it's possible that the author of Jonah, who we don't know, we've no idea who wrote this book, was simply using this obscure prophet to tell his story. As an interesting side note, the prophetic word that Jonah brought in 2 Kings about Jeroboam II was later overturned by Amos, because Jeroboam turned out to be such a, a terrible king. And so we should have in our mind as we start to read this story that maybe Jonah is someone who is a little bit out of step with God's will. Maybe he's someone who doesn't quite align himself with the right people or the right ideas. And there are more clues, too, that this is perhaps something other than a historical account. For example, Jonah doesn't behave like any of the other prophetic books. Certainly, um, it starts the same. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, but very quickly goes off the rails when Jonah decides to ignore God. What kind of a prophet is this? And also, while many of the other prophetic uh, books are poetic in nature, Jonah is very much story-driven. There is a very strong narrative structure. 
So at the beginning, um, in chapter 1, in the Hebrew, God tells Jonah to get up and to go. Get up and go. In the English translation, the word up is missing. But it's there in the Hebrew. But then we see Jonah going down. First he goes down to Joppa, then down to the ship, then down to the ocean, and even down to the place of the dead in chapter 2, verse 6, before being brought up again by God from inside the fish. And there are other clues as well. The author borrows motifs from all over the place, like the idea of three days representing a long journey, as in uh, Genesis 22 or Exodus 3. Or how chapter 2 is made up entirely from the Psalms. The whole chapter is completely uh, plagiarized. It's an English teacher's nightmare. Um, If you're bored later, you can try and work out where each verse comes from, but you've got bits of Psalm 5, 18, 26, 30, 31, 42, 50, 69, 88, 103, 116, 120, 142, and 143 in there. So good luck um, with that. And these clues, along with some others that unfortunately I haven't got time to go into this morning, but do talk to me afterwards, Um, Lead me to agree with those who suggest that this book is probably best viewed as satire. And if you're not familiar um, with satire, it essentially uses humour, irony and exaggeration uh, to expose or criticise the flaws in individuals or systems. And this book is so jam-packed full of humour, irony and exaggeration. And again, I wish I had more time to get into it all with you today, but let me just give you a couple of examples. Firstly, we have this character Jonah, the disobedient prophet. In chapter 1, verse 9, we see that he says he worships the God of heaven who made the land and the sea, while at the same time trying to escape the God of heaven on the land and the sea. We have the pagan sailors who we might have expected to behave immorally that turn out to just be really Great guys, doing all they can to save Jonah being largely his fault. And even when Jonah says, throw me overboard, they're sent into this moral quandary where they end up praying for forgiveness and making vows to God. And then we have the king of Nineveh, this powerful, evil dictator taking off his robes and putting on sackcloth and covering himself in dust and even decreeing that the animals themselves should do the same. And you've got repentant donkeys and cows, you know, We're perhaps dealing with satire. And the thing is, nobody in this story, nobody does what's expected of them. Nobody does what they're expected to do. And that's exactly the point. Because the story is designed to make us uncomfortable. To make us uncomfortable so that we ask ourselves some difficult questions. Questions like, how do you feel about people who don't believe the same things that you do, Acting better than you. Like the sailors who saved Jonah's life. Here we have God's messenger literally preferring death to following God's will. Starkly contrasted by these pagan sailors who turn out to be morally upright and good. It reminded me of this story of the uh, Good Samaritan, actually. You know, the Samaritans were hated and despised, and yet when asked to give an example of someone loving their neighbor, Jesus paints the Samaritan as the hero of the story. Similarly, we have the king of Nineveh who we might expect to laugh Jonah out of the city or probably just kill him, humbling himself before God. If you were to read this story when it was written as an Israelite, there's a good chance you'd have found it really offensive. How can our enemies 
get this more than we do? How can our enemies behave better than we do? Like Jonah trapped in the fish, the story is carrying us towards a larger world. It's asking us to consider, what if God isn't just interested in those who look and act and think the same way that we do, but everyone, including our enemies? And we see glimpses of this through the Old Testament. Hagar, the Egyptian slave, who was treated poorly by Sarah but found by God. Ruth, the the Moabite, who showed great kindness and loyalty to Naomi. Jethro, the Midianite. Moses' father-in-law, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, and so on. And of course, Jesus, we see it in his life and ministry when he spends time with the, the woman of Samaria or declares that the Roman centurion has more faith than anybody in all of Israel. Sometimes in the Bible, God is best represented by those that we would consider out rather than in. That's interesting, isn't it? But perhaps the bigger question this story asks, and, and this is kind of where I want to land this morning, is this, are you okay with God loving and forgiving your enemies? Are you okay with God loving and forgiving your enemies? You see, the story is is very clever. When it starts at the beginning, when Jonah runs away, we're not given any explanation as to why. He just pegs it. It's not until the climax of the story in chapter 4, after God has decided to save the people of Nineveh, that we find out his reasons. Listen to this. This is what it says in chapter 4, verse 2. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Isn't this what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Those famous words from Exodus 34 being used by Jonah to chastise God. Who'd have thought it? Oh, I knew how compassionate you were. knew how gracious you were. You see... Later, Jesus would tell a um, similar story, actually, in the prodigal son about a father who shows mercy and love to a lost child while the older brother stands in judgment, storms out of the house and complains. Jonah was not okay with God saving these people. Jonah wanted judgment and God wanted mercy. And the thing about Mercy, and the thing about grace, is that it makes life unfair. It means that the people we think might deserve punishment might end up actually being forgiven by God. And it might mean that we need to let go of some of our unforgiveness as well. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God loves your enemies. 
He, he loves them. And he calls us to do the same. I love that the story of Jonah ends with a question. Because the most important transformation that takes place is not in the characters of the story. In fact, we might even argue that very little transformation takes place in Jonah at all. He's just as obstinate at the end as he is at the beginning of the story. The transformation that's supposed to take place is in us. It wants us to recognize that God is interested in saving and redeeming everyone, even those that we may have previously considered outside of his love and his mercy. Because as Jonah reminds us, that's what God is like. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. What about us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, of which we are all recipients. Father, I thank you that you do not see our sin or our wrongdoing, Father, but that you forgive us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And not only us, God, but everyone that turns to you. Father, I pray that you would help us to see everyone around us through your eyes. Father, that you would keep us from standing in judgment over people. Father, that you would keep us from holding on to our unforgiveness. And that we would live our lives in the same grace and mercy that we have received from you. Father, I pray that we would respond to that challenge of loving our enemies, of praying for those who persecute us, of recognizing, God, that your heart is indeed for everyone. Help us, Lord, we pray.